Do you think life is simpler after you retire? For some, it's actually more complicated when facing issues about health, estate plans, probate, long-term care, and more. That's why attorney CPA Joe Cordell hosts Elder Talk with Joe Cordell, providing smart solutions for seniors and an open forum for older adults with important questions about their future. Here's attorney CPA Joe Cordell. Welcome to another episode of Elder Talk. Well, this week, we're going to talk about family feuds. Yep, it's a game show, but that's not what we're talking about today. But, you know, it's kind of a fitting way to describe often um, some of the events surrounding estate planning, um, a death in which there's an estate that's opened, uh, the management of trusts, because all too often there's conflict. Mm -hmm. There doesn't have to be, uh, but I think that many of you can think of examples of people you know that have had these sorts of problems. Some oh, people yeah. are thinking, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> They're thinking, as a matter of fact, in this, in this house. But the point is we want to talk about um, why this occurs and kind of give you some very helpful suggestions about ways to avoid it in your state planning process. So I think we can make this interesting. I know if you stay around and listen, it will be helpful in a lot of ways. All right, Susan, uh, where should we start? Well, you know how the family feud game does things. Well, they have the top six answers, the top two answers, the top three answers on the board. Well, today we're going to talk about some of those top answers that are going to help you prevent family feuds. And, and a good way to do this then is we will, uh, I will sort of set the stage. And some of you have, have been on this stage. Some of you have gone into law offices with family members to talk about estate planning, sometimes as the children, sometimes as the, the planning uh, aging adult. Um, so I'll, I'll tell you what is often seen from the standpoint of the lawyer or the law office. Yeah, so walk us through. We're coming in. It's a brand new day. We're coming in, and we're going to try and get this taken care of so that we can avoid a family feud. What's yes. first? Yeah, and, and usually there's, there's a driver for people coming in. It can be that there's been a crisis, a family crisis. Somebody's had a stroke, and maybe they're in a nursing home. They're going to have to go to the hospital, and, and it may re relate to uh, Medicaid slash estate planning. Uh, sometimes it's simply that that people have have decided that it's time we update uh, planning that was done when we were very young. Maybe they had it done when they their children were first born, and these people at the time were in their 30s. Now they're in their 80s. That's a common scenario. Um, another is that maybe there have been some serious illnesses where they the the parents the aging parents recognize that it's time that we we do some estate planning perhaps for the first time a diagnosis could be a diagnosis yeah mm -hmm. so uh whatever the reason i can tell you that normally or often it does not include just the two prospective clients often it is the prospective clients in tow with various family members. I can see that. And it's not unusual to walk into a reception area and find six or so people there. And and it's difficult for the lawyer because it raises a lot of red flags. I mean, lawyers, you know, we're subject to these rules of ethics that require us to be very conscious of who our client is and, and who is who are the other people. And, and they often fit certain categories about which there are various rules, ethical rules that lawyers have to follow. You know, is this somebody who aspires to also be a client? In other words, sometimes you do estate planning where it's kind of multi-generational planning. That's not unusual. And often it makes a ton of sense when you have a plan in which a, you have a small family business or whatnot. 
So there's that situation. You have to be very alert because sometimes the potential conflicts means that the lawyer can't represent all of you. That's not always true. Um, but the lawyer needs to diagnose that situation and, and form that opinion early on as opposed to stumbling onto it mm-hmm. later on, in which case he or she may have to withdraw entirely from representing everybody in the family. Then there's others who who may be expected beneficiaries, expectant, I should say, mm-hmm. beneficiaries. In fact, the parents may not intend that, or, or but there may be that expectation. So you want to identify those people. Sometimes it's just people doing the transportation. So it's in a category of a non-lawyer. So, again, there are rules of ethics as how the lawyer can interact with people who are associated with the matter but are not a party. Um, so so lawyers uh, have to to sort through these figures and uh, and identify what their role is and decide how to proceed accordingly. And now, often the client themselves are not always forthcoming. Uh, yeah, well, sometimes the client is is acquiescent to a process that's been initiated by others. Now that can be an innocent phenomenon where it's it's the children who say, "Mom, Dad, you know, you really need to go in and take care of this for your own good." Uh, so there's there's that sort of very uh, admirable uh, initiative on the part of the children, but there are other occasions when, you know, maybe less admirable. Uh, so the lawyer, really, in fairness, you should expect that the lawyer would want to meet privately with the parents initially. Um, that's almost always the best scenario for the lawyer. Now, now, not all lawyers do it that way because there are circumstances where it might be warranted if it's very clear that the parent is is impaired in some way. There's some what lawyers call incapacity, mm-hmm. uh, some senility or whatnot. But generally, you should expect when you go into a lawyer's office that he speaks first with you, the prospective client or clients, mom and dad. So will you actually tell the children of some, some of your clients, okay, you need to stay here. Let me go talk to mom and dad first. Uh, typically, yes. Okay. Now, there are exceptions to that, but, but you want to read the situation. And, and you have to know whenever you make an exception, you need to understand the risks. And sometimes the lawyers don't explain to their prospective clients, which, again, we'll assume are parents uh, of, the, of the others, some others that are in the room. They often don't realize the magnitude of the importance. Number one is, from the lawyer's standpoint, is to identify very quickly is their undue influence. Well, the parents may not recognize that there's undue influence. I mean, often the victim of undue influence are the last to know because they may not perceive it that way. I mean, you hear of these very harsh, dominating scenarios, but that's not typically how it happens. So what would be the typical scenario? Typically, it's, it, it's benign uh, if, if not observed closely. In other words, you could, you could have somebody who is just kind of takes control because the other is more vulnerable, right? So somebody needs to be the parent, quote-unquote. And in taking that role, the other becomes increasingly acquiescent. So they, they often are simply led along as sheep. And so the real decisions and the real objectives and the priorities and goals and whatnot suddenly go from this person helping the aging aged person achieve the aged person's goals to the aged person cooperating in the achievement of this of this other person's goals, mm. and that 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 uh, transition can take place subtly. It doesn't mean that there's any heavy handedness. It doesn't mean that there's any sort of coercion. 
it's it's just a fact that the other cooperates. Do you run into situations though where um, I can I can think of a couple myself where the let's say the children are really trying to do what's best, but mom is resistant or dad is resistant to you know there isn't any sort of evil intent. They really are trying to do what's best, but mom still says no. I don't want to do blank. Yeah, and I would argue that's the majority. I mean, I really don't doing practicing in this area. I don't develop a cynical view of human nature uh, any worse than I had before. I mean, doing divorce law. <laughs> I was gonna say. Yeah, I, I did divorce law as as all of you know. I think, or most of you know, uh, for twenty five years of my career, and and I find uh, returning to this area uh, refreshing in many ways. Uh, so no, I think it is typical that the motivations of the children are good. Now, good vis-a-vis mom and dad, maybe not good vis-a-vis each other, siblings, because okay. I do find that, that that often brings out the worst in, in, in siblings. Um, but but as, the, as it pertains to mom and dad, I do believe that, that you know, we can all take consolation that the substantial majority of our kids care about us uh, and their motivations, though they may be wrong in their particular conclusions, I think their motivations are good. But let me point out something, though, about that initial meeting that makes it so important. Um, the initial meeting often sets the stage for the relationships thereafter. And I think that, that parents all too often think that inclusion is always better, the more the better as to how ch- the role that children play in the process, that the more children that sit in on that meeting, the better. Um, that that the more children know about the details, better. Uh, clearly, I mean, this is the sort of thing where, like a lot of things in life, there are two sides of the road, either of which you can rack on. So you can go off the road in terms of exclusion. Kids mm-hmm. know nothing. Nobody knows nothing. They they know nothing about your 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 motivations, your reasons. And sometimes it's said that that can set the stage for conflict that wouldn't otherwise have been there if parents had shared with kids what they were thinking mm-hmm. absolutely there, there's a truth in that but I can tell you the other side of the road is where you decide that you're going to include all the kids in the planning process and what ultimately happens is there's a lot of competition among the kids for inclusion you forfeit some of the protections the law would otherwise give and and it uh, it was a mistake to do it without discretion so you had mentioned earlier that you forfeit attorney-client privilege if there are more in the room. Is, is that what I understood? Yeah, and and that simply means that that the law affords, thankfully, um, a lot of protection to what you say to your lawyer. I mean, we have, as a society, in the Western world at least, and this is handed down from England, this great, great respect for the importance of people being able to go to a lawyer and be frank about their problem, whether it's a criminal issue, you know, I've committed this crime, I've done this, or whether it's um, that that they, they're thinking about a transaction that they don't know if it's a good idea or not. You want them to be able to be brutally frank with that lawyer, knowing that they will ne- the lawyer will not be forced to share, nor can the lawyer even share that information. Um, so attorney-client privilege is a big, big deal in the Western world. Um, now, there are some ways in which you forfeit it, and, and one way in which you forfeit it is having someone in that meeting who's not essential. Now, thankfully, that term essential is a little bit shapeable by saying okay. that if the person is 
I'm going to use a, a phrase here that I, I think many of you can appreciate to call someone an agent. So an agent is somebody who is an extension of the principal, and they're necessary. So we all have agents in various ways. You have a realtor as an agent. Well, an agent in this context is somebody who's really important to the attorney-client relationship for that matter. So if it's estate planning, who might that be? Well, it could be any one of your family members if there really is an important role that they play in communicating on your behalf. Maybe you have some mild incapacities. Uh, you don't have to be uh, uh, entirely senile, but you could have some challenges. You could have communication challenges. There has to be some merit. It can't mm-hmm. be entirely fluff. But but as long as someone is there because they're essential to the meeting, then that's okay. But whenever you bring in all your kids or even one of your kids who you cannot make a legitimate case that they were important to the meeting, then you've you have forfeited everything that was said in that meeting. So there's another concern, though, too, about who comes in in that initial meeting. And, and those of you who are considering planning should think about this. Um, you could forfeit your documents doing the things that you want them to do. So undue influence is something that in probate courts is always um, under suspicion, so to speak, or they're on the alert for potential undue influence just because it, 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 it's common in this, in this arena. So whenever you include someone in that meeting and, and others, other children, for example, are not included or other people are not included, and it doesn't have to be a child, it could be anyone, uh, then you've, you've set the situation up for an allegation of undue influence. And I don't want to get too technical here for people listening, but there's this thing called, I hate to even go this way, but I think I can explain this where it's, it's easy. Uh, there's a thing called a presumption, a, a presumption of, of undue influence where the person who's challenging your estate planning or challenging your trust, uh, if they can establish these three things, then they get the presumption in their favor, which suddenly the burden of proof has shifted to the people who are defending your hmm. will and defending your estate plan. Now they have to prove that there wasn't undue influence, really? and that can be tough. And, and one of the elements for the person who's wanting to create this presumption who's wanting to, to put you on the defensive, um, is to show that someone played a role in procuring the planning, whether they, for example, made the phone call, set up the appointment, drove you there, sat in on the meeting, uh, whether they also got a disproportionate allocation for what they would normally get. Uh, was there a monetary incentive for that to happen? Uh, so it, it's not difficult to create this presumption, and a good lawyer is going to alert be alert to this you as a client should not have to know what i just told you well and you can see how that scenario just plays out in sibling rivalry i mean i know even as we get older we kind of think oh that goes away i don't know i think sometimes sibling rivalry can follow you into adulthood and it looks like mom gave you more maybe mom did it just simply because you were there and you helped her out with some more things and she thought she was repaying you but you've created this element of of rivalry and potentially yeah. undue influence. And and it, it ties in with what we were talking about a while ago. It's another example where really the allegation by the child who brings this action is typically not against mom or dad. They really believe there was undue influence. Right. Oh, yeah. They, it's not the, the so, mom and dad. It's the brother or sister. So it's an example of that, of, of that uh, tendency to be um, adversarial or competitive with your siblings. 
and to take too many slots, you know, to, to fill slots that perhaps weren't intended. Siblings have the capacity for that, and in some families more than others, mm-hmm. granted. But anyway, uh, you shouldn't have to know this. Your lawyer should know what I just told you. Uh, but but I want you to understand why your lawyer may be apprehensive about uh, having people included in the meeting, why they would be indifferent, why they would not be indifferent to who you wanted to include. So the one issue is that confidentiality is lost. So if there's any dispute later about what was said, uh, if if you forfeit that confidentiality, then that means that the people in that meeting can be forced to testify about everything that was said in that meeting. And that could be very embarrassing. Hmm, mm-hmm. um, so, uh, the, But the piece, though, that, that often I have foremost in mind is the possibility that there will be, in fact, some dispute later and the person will allege, the person who wants to undo the estate planning will allege that someone was in on that meeting who had an undue influence. Are there really that many cases brought against for undue influence or disputes amongst amongst family members? I mean, do you see well, it often or rarely? Or uh, it's not it's not as common as you might think it would be. Uh, but I will tell you that often that's the result of there being settlements before a case goes to trial. Often there will be, for example, an interim clause. Uh, the courts don't really like interim clauses. What what I mean is a a clause that says that if you challenge this, then you will lose the share that you have. But courts acknowledge that that no contest clauses are are enforceable by law. You just can't make them too draconian. So um, uh, that that is a disincentive. So including a, a provision like that would definitely be appropriate in a case where you suspect that's coming down the road. Some clients want it included in all ca- in all their estate planning, which I don't disagree with. Hmm. Uh, but they need to know that some judges will still say, "Look, if it turns out there was a meritorious reason to challenge this, we're not going to punish the person." So some judges, you know, read read the um, no contest clause very narrowly to mean something that lacks merit or that's frivolous or whatnot, or maybe that they actually lose um, as opposed to bring a case. Okay. So um, so they are really trying to make it right. They are. They are. But And then there are just settlements. So one reason you may not uh, have many cases that go to trial, and you don't. The vast majority do not ever go to trial. But sometimes they're just deals cut. I mean, if your brother is really upset and you can give him an extra $50,000 out of a settlement, uh, then sometimes those deals are cut and they, they head off co- further conflict. Uh, but... But the, the, the better thing to keep in mind is that the more that's at stake, the more risk there is that some sort of conflict will occur. But, but the issues go really beyond that initial meeting. But I wanted to take a couple minutes here and communicate that that initial meeting is, is hugely important. And, and don't think that your lawyer is just being persnickety if he or she says, you know, let me talk to you first. Let me give you all these warnings so that you know if you bring somebody in here, it's, it, it may jeopardize our plan. So th- those are very serious issues. And I think that's really important to note because I can see just human nature. If I'm taking my parents and the lawyer comes out and says, well, you need to stay out here, I'm probably going to bristle at that. And yeah. I'm probably going to say, well, what are you trying to get out of them? I'm here to protect them because you're yeah. the new guy. Right, right. And, uh, That's an understandable response. And so it is. So it's good to know that there are very specific reasons 
that um, are necessary for you to do that. Yeah, it's interesting. What this represents is a situation where the child is distrustful of the lawyer, thinking maybe the lawyer is going to railroad the parents or Mm -hmm. whatnot. Meanwhile, the lawyer's job is to be a little, have a healthy suspicion of the children, particularly if it's a potential beneficiary. And so the lawyer is actually thinking, you know, it's my duty to have my two clients come in individually first and talk to them about about what they want to judge their capacity. That's important because if your client is not doesn't have the capacity to hire you, then the retainer agreement, the documents, everything hmm. is is done. I mean, it's not going to stand up. It's invalid. So so the the lawyer has to check for a couple of things in that initial meeting. Then they have to do their their duty in telling you their due diligence and telling a client about the consequences of inclusion. Now, another thing, of course, which you don't need a lawyer to tell you, but but remember that that whoever sits in that meeting can voluntarily tell whoever they want as to what happened in that meeting. And I so can they're tell not you, bound by anything. They're not bound. So certainly. The, the I'd say more common than anything else in terms of train going on the track, going off the track related to including people in those meetings, is it's people in the meetings who go to siblings or other family members and talk about what was said, and then you have this family grapevine, and in addition to having compromised the privilege of the meeting, uh, now you have conflicts starting to to simmer to the surface that wouldn't otherwise have been there. I just think that. It should be whenever you think about who's going to come in to help you with that initial meeting, think about it carefully, consider the consequences. Now, let me let me get to another thing that relates to to heading off family feuds and to assuring that your plan ends up the way you want it to end up. Um, one thing that is important, I would say, is for the lawyer to have identified for him or her someone who the lawyer can interact with in the event that something happens and you do become um, incompetent, and and that could be um, it could be through a durable power of attorney. It's the most common device which we've talked about on this show. Uh, that's that's an easy tool, but there needs to be a tool that allows the lawyer to have a go-to person in the event that problems develop. And it's not unusual for the lawyer to be perhaps the first objective observer to see that in their subsequent meetings mm-hmm. with their clients that there's something that's not right. And often it's the lawyer that that needs to have the ability to pick up the phone and call someone uh, on behalf of their client, and that the lawyer has to have permission to do that. I, I can tell you the rules of confidentiality are very, very strict. So without that permission, and I assume that's a document or a form that you sign that allows that that gives that permission. But without that permission, you you can't do anything. You can't call me and say, "Hey, I've noticed this." You can't call uh, my brother or anything like that. Well, let me answer that this way. Um, I think this is good news, but in any case, Missouri is one of those states that is most protective of confidentiality. When you look at the rules of ethics of the various states, uh, most have started to erode a lot of these protections. You know, lawyers are mandatory reporters if if mm, there's mm-hmm. been abuse of some sort. Lawyers are included in that long list of people, uh, caregivers and, and hospital workers and others, who have to report in many states. Uh, additionally, lawyers in many states now, the rules of ethics provide that if they know of someone who's going to suffer physical harm, if it's imminent, if it's going to happen, then the lawyer shall take some sort of protective action. 
uh, whether it's to their client or someone else. Others say if you know of an imminent victim of severe financial or other harm that would be a result of fraud, for example, then the lawyer can take that protective action. Some people might be surprised to hear that in Missouri you cannot. Hmm. Now, I I won't say cannot. Uh, Missouri does not require a lawyer, first of all, to be a mandatory reporter. So a lawyer can be told about some sort of abuse, any of those things that we that we have mandatory reporting laws through Division of Social Services, a lawyer is not required to report that. Really? Yeah. So they, the the client can again. It's it's an example of how Missouri is weighing these values on both sides of the scale, and they're saying it's so important for someone to be able to share. And similarly, a lawyer cannot report even if they they do not have to report, even if they know of an imminent harm to someone, imminent, hmm. uh, and if it's a severe and substantial harm deadly harm. Um, same thing with fraud occurring. The lawyer has no duty to report those things. Now They are allowed but are not bound by it? They're allowed and even then um, it, the, the rules are clear. There's no obligation but they're, they're not allowed even if they know about fraud. So any sort of financial harm to, to someone, hmm. generally speaking, those things a lawyer is not even allowed to disclose. Even though it's in the standard rules in almost every other state or the the majority of other states. In Missouri, they took those two paragraphs out of the model rules and said, you know, though in other states, lawyers are required to report knowledge about fraud that's imminent to, say, investors or stockholders. I mean, you can imagine listening to this how, gee, that sounds like a very good thing. Mm -hmm. Lawyers should have to do that. But Missouri said, no, we think that the more important value is that a person who might be engaged in that they're not. They can't go to the lawyer and get help in committing the crime. That, okay. That's not what's happening here. That's no, a plus. Lawyers cannot advise or assist with a crime, of course, but in terms of getting knowledge as to, you know, how would I deal with this in the courts? What happens when I come forward and and try to correct this? Can you help me correct it? They freely know that that um, that those queries, uh, that that assistance that they're seeking out from a lawyer, will be protected. So. Missouri is is very big on confidentiality, very big, bigger than most states. Um, and the problem with that is when a lawyer is confronted with a client who has some sort of urgent need, you know, what does what does the, the lawyer do to protect their client? Well, I should tell you that there is carved out in the rules of ethics an exception related to a client's incapacity. So uh, a, a lawyer who has a client who they have to meet certain prongs where they're they're truly uh, incapable. They have to be uh, facing a uh, substantial financial or other harm. Uh, they have to not be capable of stopping it from occurring. Hmm. Under those circumstances, the lawyer may not shall. The lawyer may uh, take action. It's called protective action. The lawyer may take protective action on behalf of their client. So most lawyers, I can tell you, they want to take protective action. I mean, if you know your client can't help themselves mm-hmm. and you see this train proverbially or literally coming down the track, you know, you want to help your client. But the lawyer has to be very, very careful. If the lawyer thinks that by talking to children that the children will exploit the circumstance mm-hmm. to get a guardian that, that may make things worse or that the children will manipulate or the children might become the guardian – and, and disrupt the known plan that the lawyer has from his client. So there are circumstances where a lawyer would not take protective action because they think that that the maybe 
whatever flowed from that may not be the right thing. But the lawyer, in fairness, let me hurry to add, they do have several options. Protective action doesn't mean just going to a child. It could mean several things. So, so the lawyer would want to do what he or she could, but they might rule out involving children in cases where they think it's going to worsen their client's situation. Interesting. So they could report it to the authorities or something like that if they saw something. Yeah, they could, for example, seek out a diagnostician, okay. uh, somebody who could help the lawyer understand or make some useful suggestions. Or okay. or the lawyer could, if they had, getting back to our point a, a moment ago, if the lawyer had a durable power of attorney for health care or some other document where his client made clear that, that um, this is the person I want you to deal with in this event, then it does, that becomes a springboard, an opportunity for the, the lawyer to to be, feel confident, including someone else, that you, the client, have identified. Okay, so we've come into our first meeting. You've given us a lot to think about on why you need to meet with your client specifically alone and not necessarily have everybody there. Let's maybe turn the corner a little bit. Should we take a quick break? And then turn the corner a little bit and talk about some of the responsibilities that we have in order to, in order to avoid some family feuds. Back in a moment. You're listening to Elder Talk with Joe Cordell, providing smart solutions for seniors. Presented by Cordell Planning Partners, your elder law advisors. And now, attorney CPA Joe Cordell. Welcome back to Elder Talk. We've been talking about how to avoid a family feud and how to see the plan that you actually created be the plan that goes into effect someday. The way that you wanted it to. The way you wanted it to. And remember, we're talking about a plan that very well may go into effect during your lifetime. We're not talking about just a plan that would, would exist at your death. But, but if you've done your planning correctly, then you've provided for the possibility that something could happen in your life where suddenly... Someone else has to be in charge. Mm -hmm. This is never plan A, remember. Plan Most of a, us don't like that. Yeah, plan A is, you know, you're going to be moving about, managing your own affairs, enjoying life, fully mobile, fully healthy, until suddenly one day in a moment you're not. Mm -hmm. That's that's all of our plan A. Uh, that uh, All of us have that plan. But but we also need to recognize that, that there's a, a possibility, however remote, that things won't in fact go that way. And, and now we're talking about Plan B and Plan C, and 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 we'll focus on on, and we have focused on here on this show a lot, talking about, you know, how do you plan for those those scenarios that aren't ideal, mm -hmm. and and we know that you have to cover for the period for when you're alive, maybe who knows, maybe a decade or more in which you suddenly are not the one in charge. Hopefully you're enjoying life, mm -hmm. but you may not be the one who is capable, and therefore you're not the one who would be in charge of things. We've suggested to you on this show many times, it's probably a better idea for you to choose who that person's going to be that's going to manage your life rather than a judge or someone else even in a very informal way, which can be even worse. So, so whenever we think about you know, who is it that might be in charge of things, in charge of things while we're alive or in charge of things when we're gone? I mean, granted, that, too, is an issue. Um, and that can be in the form of, like, many of you are familiar with the phrase executor. Mm -hmm. uh, the technical phrase that's used in statute now is personal representative. But, um, again, let, let's assume that, that this person could be acting by way of a durable power of attorney while you're alive. They could be acting by way of a, a, of a trust or trustee. They would be their official role. Uh, they could be acting by way of a, a personal representative to a will. 
So in any of these cases, they're in charge, and, and there's a certain set of qualities that, that makes someone a good candidate for this role. And as you might imagine, there's a certain set of qualities that can make this person a disastrous candidate for this role. Well, and in keeping with our theme for the day, which is family feuds, I think probably the most common person that you choose is going to be one of your children. That creates an opportunity for a family feud. Yeah, and, and now uh, I would also add, though, that usually your first option technically is your spouse right so so we're assuming i guess we all too often assume that that maybe we're down to one surviving parent and then the children are kind of gathering around to help that parent but but the the plan hopefully will have started when if it's a couple in which they both come in initially they will typically have each other Mm -hmm. as the alternate person not always sometimes if for example dad is is real frail at the time they're doing the planning, and mom we know could pass first. Um, dad may not be the choice, and probably shouldn't be mm-hmm. the choice. Uh, but but let's recognize spouse, and I can tell you there notoriously is a place where things can go awry because if that spouse is stepmom, oh, or didn't step-dad, think about that one. Yeah, yeah. It and especially I say stepmom because sometimes guys, and I don't want to be guilty of stereotyping here. But sometimes guys will have married somebody who's a little younger after mom died or maybe even there was a divorce. Mm-hmm. Um, so now we have this person that maybe is resented for various reasons, maybe some good reasons. And, and this person, though, may be the one who's placed in charge and typically is. I'll be honest with you. That's the most common thing we see is a parent, a, a, a couple they'll generally choose their spouse mm-hmm. and in, in this world we live in today versus if we were having this conversation 50, 60 years ago, this world we live in today, it's, there's a good chance it's a stepmom. Yeah, that's definitely a, an opportunity for a lot of feuding and family disagreements because there's there really there are a lot of mementos, a lot of wealth established or wealth gained in that first marriage, and then now there's a second marriage, and there may be stepchildren there may be half sisters or half siblings in there as well and there could be lingering grudges Mm -hmm. about things that happened decades ago Um, but I I think that we need to and I we try to any lawyer is going to try to call their clients attention to this potential misstep Uh, but but all too often um, the the spouses prioritize their relationships with each other and and they feel as a matter of principle that I've got to name my wife. I'm going to name my wife. And I hear what you're saying, um, and, and I recognize there's that risk, but I'm not going to have my wife not be in charge. And and sometimes you run into that. So as the lawyer, it's our job to do what our clients want to do. We, mm-hmm. we issue our warnings, and, and then we try to implement the plan in a way that, that the things we fear don't happen. So what characteristics should we look for when choosing who to be in charge of our of our affairs? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's like... Um, uh, uh, politics you only have the candidates before you to choose from and you may not like any of those um, but you've got to choose sometimes the lesser evil and, and it doesn't mean necessarily that all the candidates are prone to to some sort of misconduct or abuse but it might be that there are problems with every choice mm. it might be, it's common for example to to have you know, maybe that that step parent who, 
for perhaps no particular shortcomings on his or her part, but just because of who they are, they're going to encounter resistance. So there's that that troubling aspect of choosing a surviving spouse. The other is with children is that you often don't have that perfect child who is, you know, has the diplomacy of Henry Kissinger, uh, you know, the selflessness of Mother Teresa. I mean, you just often don't don't have that child to choose. Mm-hmm. So you have maybe an older child, incidentally, who is responsible. I'm stereotyping here, but I often see that where the older child does seem to to assume responsibilities and, and often is the better choice. Uh, and and also it gives a a um, fig leaf at least of of defensibility for choosing that person because you know often this concept that the older child is more deserving for the first shot at authority. Now, will you put each? Could you put two people in charge? Would you make them co executors? That, that, that's a good question, and absolutely there is no problem legally with doing that, but. But as, as some of you may be thinking, well, I see potential for them to butt heads. And, and the danger about any sort of voting position in which you have an equal number of people is the potential for a deadlock. Mm-hmm. And, and that sort of, of deadlock can easily bring things to a halt when they need to be moving along. So uh, it can disrupt a plan. And it can cause a lot of expense. Now, if you have an uneven number, it's better. But still, you have logistical inconveniences. You have the the scheduling and other challenges associated with getting together to make decisions. So normally, it's better to choose one person. It's not to say you don't choose a successor. Yeah, you, you, you definitely should choose a successor because you don't know how long this plan will be in place and whether the person will be willing and able to, to assume that role. But uh, But when you're looking for the right characteristics, I would say – you want somebody who is not going to be inclined to be a bulldozer. So that person who is going to be more inclusive, it doesn't mean that they make all their decisions by counsel, but it does mean that they will solicit and consider the opinions of others. Because often it's those decisions that, that are completely in disregard of what others think or want that are most resented. So somebody who at least mm-hmm. you know has the, the um, uh, appearance that they're including others gets a long way. So often if you have that choice among your children, better that. Um, but, you know, sometimes you, uh, I've had clients who say, look, no, they're going to argue anyway. Mm-hmm. I want the person who's going to make firm and, and unyielding decisions. Okay. So I think that it, it's very much circumstance dependent. That answer is not very helpful, is it? Well, it kind of is. I mean, we do have to look at our unique set of circumstances. And that's the way to describe it. Look at our children. Look at our relationship with each of them, their relationship with each other. There are many things to take into account. One quick question. Can you, let's say you do want to divide it, but can you divide um, one of your children who is maybe financially savvy to handle the financial aspects of, of the estate and then another children who might have a little more compassion and be nice to me in my old age who would handle the more personal effects you can do a division of labor and the most obvious division of labor is the durable power of attorney for health care which relates to all health care decisions versus the durable power of attorney for general business legal etc um, so that's an easy division to make also though you can you can take an estate and this assumes that that the assets are um, significant in size 
but also that they're very clearly divisible. If there's real estate versus various financial assets, mm-hmm. then that would be an easy division for two people who might okay. want their own areas of responsibility. But um, but I think that, that this is a case where, you know, I, I cautioned earlier in the show how you can be too inclusive, and often you don't hear that. All you hear about is you should be very inclusive and, and the caution that if you don't ever talk to your kids about what's coming, then you're setting up the stage for um, setting the stage for conflict down the road. Not that I disagree with that, but I think anyone who fails to discuss the fact that there's discretion about what you say and to who you say it, uh, to whom you say it, that is important, and and that's all too often not mentioned. But again, back to to the more familiar rule, it is a good idea to to once you've made a decision in that context to prepare those if they don't expect it mm-hmm. <laughs> because I think it's really the things that, that kids don't expect that often result in more conflict. A little bit of pride. Mm-hmm. I don't think greed is, is the primary motivation. If you had asked me this before I had had more experience in domestic relations, I would have thought that, that greed would be a motivating force. But I can tell you, it, it's it's usually much more about pride. More like they had their feelings hurt. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's about huh. offen- a personal offense. Mm-hmm. Um, dignity, things like that. Um, sometimes an argument, as we mentioned earlier, about a dispute about what's really in mom and dad's best interest. Mm-hmm. That's a common motivation. Mm-hmm. And greed makes its way on the list, maybe number three. Okay. So we've talked really briefly about what we should think about, what characteristics we need to have. We have about a minute and a half to two minutes left. So what would be the, the characteristics that we want to avoid if we see see those in our in our children or our estate manager? Well, you know, we've talked a lot about personality. Another aspect, though, that you can't ignore is just sheer capability, uh, the, expen- the extent to which they have the smarts, uh, they have the experience, the knowledge, those, those hard skills as opposed to the soft skills, those hard qualifications. Those have got to be there, again, depending on what's involved. It's not that the person you choose needs to be a CPA, but they need to have good judgment. And, and good judgment often means some familiarity with the world and with things uh, related to what they'll be doing. Uh, they, they will, in fact, probably, if there's any significant size or complexity to the estate, they probably will be hiring and retaining experts to use to get their opinion. They'll have a CPA pr- prepare returns. They'll probably have a financial advisor oversee assets, and, and you want that. But, but generally, you can't ignore that, that – um, uh, that piece that relates to sheer abilities, and it's that's less about personality than it is sheer abilities. They're going to have good judgment. They're going to make the right decisions regarding the assets in their care, um, and and health, their health, and and their their motivation. Some some might may have the capabilities, but they lack the the motivation. Hmm. Uh, but perhaps that we've seen that in other aspects of that child's life. Don't assume that suddenly, you know, they're going to become you know, perfectly uh, inspired when they have this new role. So they don't have to be able to do it themselves, but they need to have the intelligence to know when they need help, who to ask, and then the motivation to do it. Yeah, yeah, good. And that's a product of, of you know, just good common sense. It's a product of experience in the world. But, but those those are key things. And, and we, we can't fail to mention this, integrity. Mm. <laughs> integrity is huge. Probably uh, the most important. I think many parents want to believe their kids have integrity, uh, but 
but they don't all. It's like saying, you know, all the kids are above average in Lake Wobegon. <laughs> so if you poll parents about their kids' integrity, I guarantee you that all parents, you know, will end up with substantially above average. So uh, the reality is some of our kids are just not to be trusted as well with responsibility as others. And, and the worst time to try to make a point or to teach a moral lesson uh, is to turn over to them those things that are a product of your last important plan. Mm-hmm. We are out of time. So hard-headed realism is the yep. way I'd sum up that point. Uh, boy, time flies on this topic. It does. So as always, our goal here is to be interesting and above all to be helpful and informative. So we look forward to your joining us next week. This has been another episode of Elder Talk. Till then, take care. You've been listening to Elder Talk with Joe Cordell, providing smart solutions for seniors with attorney CPA Joe Cordell. Listen again next Saturday for another edition of Elder Talk with Joe Cordell, sponsored by Cordell Planning Partners, your elder law advisors. For more information, visit eldercarelaw.com. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely on advertisements.